1 Peter 2, 21-25 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated where you're at. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to head back that way. While they're headed there, let me invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to turn, join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's amazing, the song we just sang, the holy, 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 we're told in scripture that that's what the angels sing before the throne of God, even now as we speak, holy and worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain. Scripture tells us that all creation sings that song, that if we were to cease worshiping, and I don't understand it too well, that the very created things that the very rocks would begin to cry out and unanimous chorus of that same song joining all the angelic hosts of heaven that one day when Christ returns and makes things right that all of creation that is groaning for the reconciliation of all things will again once again sing in this perfect chorus and I don't understand what it's like or what what it might be like for trees to sing but I think it's pretty cool to think about And one day, every believer in this room and all the believers of the past and those that will come to faith will join in that same chorus. Although we sing now in part, one of the phrases of that song, though the darkness hide thee. And that's the age we live in right now where the darkness hides the perfect revelation of God to us. The sin, our flesh, the difficulties and the struggles, sometimes they make it hard for us to see how good God is. We can't see his full plan of redemption in our lives. And Peter is writing to a group of people that have that very same struggle. They are walking through difficulty. They are walking through darkness They don't really know what to do. So Peter, you kind of hear his like pastor's heart come out a little bit as he addresses these house churches that are dispersed across Asia. And he reminds them of their identity in Christ as as we've talked about already in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, that they're like young children, that they should follow in obedience to, to the words of God, even though it's difficult and you don't understand it, you don't have to... You don't have to understand everything to believe everything. That's what he's saying. You can just trust him. These people were living in a 
foreign region and in a strange culture. They were hated for their association with Jesus. They were strangers. They were walking through rejection. They felt alone. They were doing whatever they could to get by. And Peter reminds them that their identity is in Christ, that they are a royal priesthood, he says, God's special possession, which gives them this imperishable inheritance that gives them a permanent place in God's family, that the royal, their royal destiny is part of God's actual kingdom. He says, I know you lost a lot of things for following Christ, but you have gained so much more than you have lost. It's like you traded in a hot dog for a choice ribeye, or you traded in a tricycle for a Ferrari, or a two-man camping tent for the Taj Mahal. That pales in comparison to what you've traded. You've traded in the pleasures of earth for the glory of God and a place in his family. But Peter doesn't leave it there because this letter is not just idealistic. It's not just about the truth, but about truth applied. And he brings this truth home to their exact situation. Now, Reynolds started in this section of scripture last week and did a great job talking about this. And to be real honest with you, I wanted to skip over the end of chapter two and go straight into the second part of chapter three Um, but the Lord just wouldn't let me do it. Part of our commitment to preaching through Scripture is to actually preach through it, not to jump over the difficult parts. Although I've got no joy this week thinking about how I'm going to teach you about slavery and masters, uh, about submission to the government, and about submitting to your husbands, wives submitting to your husbands. I just want a disclaimer. These are the words of God. These are not my words. If you get mad at me, send him an email, and maybe, we'll, maybe he'll respond. Peter teaches that the reason I want to go, although these relationships he mentions are a bit contextual, that we might not be walking through the exact same things. We live in a, in a, in, in a culture of uh, opulence, of, um, where many of us have never gone to bed hungry, that many of us have never lost our job for our beliefs, that many of us have, our citizen have not been rejected because of our belief in, 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 in the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. But these people had. And you can imagine a 12-year-old and a 12-year-old teenage girl in Afghanistan reading this very passage and how much encouragement it's going to bring to her because she didn't have the freedoms that we have. I want to talk about this today because Peter teaches us this principle through three main relationships that is incredibly relevant to us and in, in how we think about these relationships. And Peter teaches us, that one of, the, one of the Christian's primary callings is to patient and faithful endurance in the face of pain and difficulty and sometimes unjust suffering. And I've got three points today, and I'm going to say them several times. Be humble, trust God, and do good. Those are Peter's direct exhortation and every one of these three relationships as we're going to see it. He's talking about three relationships, how you deal with an emperor who is corrupt and crooked, how a slave might respond to a master who is crooked and unjust, and how a wife who in this context had no rights 
other than to bear children and keep the house, how they would respond to a husband who's not a believer. He's reminding them that God sees, that he is not blind to your suffering and that he will give you justice one day. But in the meantime, this is how good God is, that he uses your suffering and your difficulties and your, your dead ends and your delays. He uses those to change you in a way that you look more like Jesus. And in that transformation of you to look more like Jesus, the watching world notices and your life becomes this great apologetic for the actual gospel. Let me remind you that God's intent was never suffering. In the very beginning, if you go back to the beginning, original blessing came before original sin. That in the beginning, when Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the day with the Lord, and they were cultivating the earth, and there were no thorn and thistles, and there were no arguing or bickering between husband and wife, and, and all of the animals lived in peace even, that there was no suffering. Because they were reflecting back the glory of God without this interference of sin and doubt and, and, and darkness. And so there was no need to conform them further into the image of Christ because they already reflected the image of Christ. But sin did come. And darkness comes. And delays come. And dead ends come. And difficulty comes. And so Peter's going to remind them, as, long, as much as you long for the day when Jesus returns... And he brings restoration to all things. And he reconciles all things. As much as you long for that day, it's not here now. So how do we live a life of faithful endurance through difficulty until he comes again? Imagine sitting in a house church in the first century the very people that Peter's writing to. And they're in this little house church, maybe 20 or 30 of them packed into this little dwelling that wasn't much of anything, maybe in an underground cave somewhere. And this is the church. And they've taken communion together and they've, they've talked about the gospel and they're sharing. If you've ever been in a community group or missional community, sometimes it looks like this. You begin to share different things. And one guy over here is like, what are we going to do about the emperor? He lit the world on fire. He blamed it, to, uh, blamed it on us. He's cast us out. He is just the crooked of the crooked. What do we do with, with Nero? I could, I could kill him. I, I just, I hate him. What, what do we do? And then another says, well, I've got three or four years left on my indentured servanthood as a slave before I can, before I can gain my freedom again. And uh, the contract says there's three or four years left, but, 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 but the, the master that I serve, I, he is just so crooked. I, I think he probably tore up the agreement and he's adding on another de a decade. And I don't, I just, man, I despise that guy. What am, what am I going to do? And then another pops up and says, man, you know, I've recently come to Christ and my husband 
hates Christianity and hates me for it. That he's harsh and difficult and threatening divorce. What am I supposed to do? And Peter, overhearing this conversation, Peter's not necessarily in the room, but he'd been talking back and forth, maybe had sat in that very room with them before, includes this in this little letter. Let me start by backing up in chapter 2 and verse 12. Reynolds covered this last week. The instruction from Peter is to keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Read that, everyone who's not a Christian, honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, that was the rumor that was being spread, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, Reynolds covered this last week. In other words, don't use the freedom that you have in Christ to show, to do whatever you want. Don't say, well, I've been forgiven, and so now I'm going to take vengeance upon those that are in authority over me. That's not, that Peter says, no, no, don't do that. Live your lives as honorable. Why? So that the lost world who acts like lost people will see your good deeds, your righteous deeds, your pure deeds. When, you, when the world says you should never forgive, that you have a forgiving spirit. When the world says that you should be proud and arrogant and talk about your accomplishments, you should take the posture of humility. When, when the world says that, that you should be stingy and invest only yourself, uh, Christianity says that, that, that you should be generous. When they see those good deeds, that they don't pat you on the back, wow, what a cool guy you are, what a cool girl you are, when they see your good deeds, that they would then turn themselves and glorify God. That in the end, on the day of visitation, when the Lord returns, that there would be more believers on this world because of the evidence that the gospel really works as it's played out in your life. Don't, don't use the freedom to do whatever you want. Live honorably, he says, so that people will notice your countercultural lifestyle to be a compelling person. Verse 13, again, we covered a bit of this last week. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Chapter 2, verse 13. To every human institution, whether it be emperor as the supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Oh, I want to know the will of God. This is the will of God, he says. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but as living as servants of God, that you would honor everyone, that you would love the brotherhood, that you would fear God, and you would honor the emperor. Here's the first relationship is this idea of missional citizenship. Or maybe, maybe cross-shaped citizenship. Missional patriotism, maybe. To those who are bewildered by the government, he says, you got to honor the emperor. Now, of course, he's talking about Nero, but they have been under a brutal regime, really since the death of Christ until now, where Nero is in charge in 60 AD, and he was the third in a trio of just, I mean, lunatic leaders. It started with Caligula, it ended with Nero. 
Now, I took a semester at Louisiana Tech on the emperors, and it is fascinating. These people were craziest of crazy. Caligula, we've mentioned him before, he was unfit to even keep a pet, much less run an empire. Shortly after becoming Caesar, he had his mom and brother killed to make sure they'd never challenge his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with his three sisters. He frequently cross-dressed and went out into public. He installed his favorite horse in Catatus as a senator and then promoted that same horse to consul. And so they would have the meetings with all the other consuls and his horse. What does a horse do to get promoted? I don't know. He once got mad at the weather and declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea, and he ordered his soldiers to load up on ships and go into the sea and take whips with them and literally beat the water and that they should bring home seashells to symbolize taking plunder from under his domain. He had the heads of deities from their past removed and placed them with his own face. Imagine if our president chopped off the heads of every monument in D.C. and replaced his head. That might not be too hard to even think about. That's the, the crazier this world gets. After you have Caligula, you have Claudius. And he may have been a hair less crazy than Caligula, but he was just every bit as cruel. He was handed the throne. He handed the throne over to Nero. By the way, when I say handed over, I mean Nero's mom killed Claudius while he was sleeping so that her son could replace him. Nero turned out to be the worst and craziest of the three. He was the most sadistic Christian hater of all time. He intentionally set fire to Rome. We've talked about this to make way for to expand his palaces and his gardens. And then when everyone got upset because he burned the villages, he didn't know what to do, so he blamed it on the Christians. And after he would build some things in that once, you know, village, now his part of his garden, to light it up, he would dip Christians in tar and put them, impale them on a pole and light them on fire. While Rome burned, historians tell him that, like some weird, crazy, tragic poet, Nero sat on his front porch and played his harp and then he blamed it all on the Christians so you can see why they have questions Peter says I know he's crazy honor him anyway as far as you can humble yourself trust Jesus and do good Live at peace and honor the emperor. Small caveat. Unless he's asking you to go directly against the word of God. Yes, he's abusive and crazy. Yes, he's trying to stamp out Christianity. But as a Christian, let me remove this burden from you. You don't have to take vengeance. God will absolutely have the last word. So you can take that burden off of you. And you can try to influence the things you can. Again, he's writing to people who have no rights, no citizenship, no legal standing. They are outcasts. They could do literally nothing. And he says, hey, don't worry about Nero. Honor the emperor. 
humble yourself. He uses the word submit. Submit has got a little bit more of a tinge to it. But what it means is the act of you choosing humility. That's what it means to submit. God will handle every, God will handle righting every wrong, either in this life or next. So humble yourself, trust God, and do good. But you might say, this, this emperor, this place that I'm in, it doesn't deserve any good. And friends, neither do you nor I deserve any salvation. Listen, the currency of the kingdom of God runs on grace. And if you miss grace, you miss everything. If you miss mercy, you miss it all. You, it's like trying to play baseball without the ball. Yeah, we can get out there and we can run the bases and we can act like we're hitting and we can act like we're throwing and we can dress up and look good. But if, but if you don't have the ball, you can't play baseball. In the same way, if, if you don't understand grace, Christianity makes no sense to us. We just become Pharisees that think that we can earn our way to God. And we cannot. On your best day, what you bring to the table, your righteousness is as filthy rags, Scripture says. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah writing to the actual captives of the Babylonian Empire. He says, when you go in there, I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you find welfare. He says, do good to them. This idea of doing good wasn't just like your personal good, good that you did, that you, you, know, you took out the trash this morning. No, the good was more communal and historic. Secular historians have all these accounts of these early Christians doing so much good. They helped the emperor build roads, that they picked up trash, that they started orphanages, that they started the very first hospitals to take care of the Roman soldiers who were there to imprison and abuse them. Be humble, trust God, and do good. Again, this never means that we disobey the commands of God. There are certain lines that we can never and should never cross as Christians. If our government one day tells us that we cannot preach Christ and Christ crucified, well, then that's where we're going to have to draw a line. And the outcomes are going to be what the outcomes are going to be. By God's grace, our message won't change a bit. We have an example of this way back in Daniel chapter 3 of the, of, 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 of the three Hebrews. <clears throat> the veggie tales called Rakshak and Benny which is easy for us to say them, right? You remember, you remember that one, right? The bunny, the bunny. Okay. You don't have to sing it, but you, you know what I'm talking about. They tell Nebuchadnezzar, they, we cannot bow or worship you. We worship only God alone, they say. They were winsome. They were respectful. They were honoring they said, we don't have to argue about this. We know, we know you're the leader. We respect you. But this thing that you're asking us to do, bow our knee to a false idol, we can't do that. Because, because our greater allegiance is to God. And we can't do this. And we don't even have to talk about it. We don't even have to appeal it. The consequences be what the consequences are. This is where we're going to draw the line. And then, you know, they got thrown into the fiery furnace and, you know, the whole story. 
as they peeked in there, there was a fourth standing with them. Jesus himself. They humbled themselves. They did good. They trusted God. He mentions in that same phrase that we would love our brothers and sisters and honor the emperor. And sometimes this means that we live in tension. It did for them because honoring the emperor did not mean they couldn't or shouldn't speak up against every evil that was harming their brothers and sisters in Christ that they were called to love. And this can be a real tension. One that we have to let the Holy Spirit actually guide us on. When to speak up. When to take political action. One very point, clear point of application I want to bring to you out of 1 Timothy 2. We're not going to solve that tension today, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, First of all then, I urge you that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our Savior. That no matter who's the next president or the current president, that we should, whether he's our guy or not our guy, our girl, not our girl, that we should pray for him. So let me ask us this question collectively. When do you pray for President Biden? No, like when? Like is it in the mornings or at lunchtime? This is not a prayer blessing as someone takes office. This is this continual action of praying for your leaders, even if you don't agree with them. And this is what Paul is saying. It's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, tell your people who are serving under these loony, I mean, cray-cray emperors, that they should be praying for them all the time. Because God has allowed them to be there. And when God's done with them being there, They are actually serving God's redemptive purpose right now. Whether we believe it, we can't see everything, we don't understand. We want vengeance now, but God looks at everything at one time. He's he's above time. And he says, listen, I'm going to allow him to be there. And here's what I want you. I want you to be humble. I want you to change things where you can. I want you to stand up for justice where you can. Absolutely use all the agency you can there. But at the end, the things that you can't change, I need you to be humble. I need you to trust God, and I need you to do good. As if that was easy enough, missional citizenship. Let's talk about missional employment. Man, this is heavy for 15 minutes in. Sorry. Come with me. Remember God's words. Don't email me. Servants, he says in verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, that there are some that are good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this, you might underline this, he says it a couple times here, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is, is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure again, This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now let me unpack this contextually just a little bit. For some, this language can come with triggers because when we hear slave and masters, we think of the history of the United States, slavery based on ethnicity. And this is, that experience we had in the United States came 1,800 years or 1,700 years 
after Peter's writing to this original audience. But Peter, inspired through the Holy Spirit in an inerrant word, he tells us, slaves, be subject to your masters. I also acknowledge that this passage, out of context, was wrongly used in the 1700s in America to justify slavery here. This is why it's so important not to just pick and choose the Bible verses you want. That you've got to, you've got to rightly divide the word of truth, Scripture says. That you've got to look at it in context, you've got to look at it in meaning, and you've got to look at it in line with all the other scriptures. Scripture interprets scripture. That's one of the basic principles of understanding how to read the word of God. Slavery in Rome that Peter was referring to was not like slavery in the U.S. You became a slave in the Roman Empire one of two ways. Rome conquered your nation in war. And typically, it was between three to seven years of slavery once you were conquered that you became a slave, mostly to the Roman soldiers. And you were put in charge of keeping their space, they're mowing their yard, essentially, planting their crops while they were off at war. That's what you were put into. It was very legally uh, understood. You had three to seven years, depending on the battle, depending on how you fought, depending on a lot of other things. And then at the end of that three to seven years, you were actually given your freedom again, normally with a small stipend that would help you start life again. Or you sold yourself into slavery so that you could pay off a debt. An example would be the taxes of Rome are rising. You can't pay for your land anymore. So they're either going to come and steal your land because you can't pay the taxes, or you're going to sell your 15-year-old into slavery, meaning that they're going to work for this other person for a few years so that they can earn enough money, right? It would be like our payday loan kind of system. Like, we're going to pay these crazy high interest rates so we can have some money right now so we can solve this immediate need. And neither of them, I'm not arguing that they were right. I'm just arguing that they're different than what maybe our understanding of slavery is. This was really indentured servanthood. Scripture, neither Peter nor Scripture is condoning even this version of slavery. In fact, Scripture strictly condemns it. Slavery that involves taking someone captive by force is explicitly condemned in the Bible. In Exodus 21, anyone who kidnaps another and sells him must be put to death. Pretty clear, God's stance on slavery. And in 1 Timothy 1, Paul puts slave traders in the same category as those who kill their parents. So God's not for it. Don't read that into the text. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty good rule never to read American history into the text. So why doesn't Peter just come out and just condemn this unfair relationship? You have to wonder. Had Peter or Paul merely issued political manifestos here, believers may have focused exclusively on political action to the neglect of the more permanent, lasting change of preaching the gospel. Yes, we want to be involved in justice. We must be involved in justice. But the most important thing the church can do, the most important thing that you can do, is to preach the gospel, is to communicate the death, burial, resurrection, and coming return of Jesus. It's the reason we're all still here. Missional employment. That your, your job 
is not just to go and do a great job. You should go do your job. You should be the best teacher on your campus. You should be the best nurse in the hospital. You, you should be the best at what you do. You should do it with excellence. You should do it with integrity. Absolutely. What is Peter calling these people to do? He's saying there's a greater purpose going on than you just being great at what you do. It's so that everyone who's around you, remember the verse, will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Through your suffering even in this specific instance. Did you know that it was actually the preaching of the gospel that upended slavery in America? We don't have time to look at all the details, but it was the gospel preaching of John Wesley in the second great awakening that enlightened people to what the gospel really meant and God's heart for all humanity to be in the image of God. And it was through that movement that people even got an awareness or an appetite that this slavery thing in America is wrong, which led to political action, which led to rules and laws being overturned. Servants, he says in verse 18, be subject to your masters with respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also the unjust. This word in Greek is where we get the word stoliosis from. You know, the curvature of the spine. That looking to them at the front, they might look normal, but as soon as they turn around, you can see their crooked nature. Even to the unjust ones, he says. What if, what if I'm in a legal contract with a crooked employer? Again, do what you can do to bring justice, absolutely. But in the end, humble yourself, trust God, and do good. You're going to be surrounded in this broken world by unjust people, sometimes evil people. You're going to go to work for them. You're going to go to work with them. You're going to go to school with them. You're going to be on teams with them. Sometimes we just have to under, sometimes we have to just endure being misunderstood, being lied about. Yes, we can try to right every wrong that is said about us, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say a lot of things about us. Church, do you understand that we're moving further and further into a post-Christian concept, a post-Christian culture? Already on the coast, less than 4% are Christians, and that is moving inwardly. We're kind of in this weird bubble where it's still like a cool thing to post about church and post about Jesus, and people kind of have a basic understanding of, of the things of God. They went to vacation Bible school when they were a kid or something like that. But we're moving into a world, your kids right now, my kids, 10, 13, and 15 are going to grow up and take their first career job in a place that is mostly post-Christian, that is antagonistic at their faith. We're already seeing it. So th this understanding is so great to have. What do you do when the, the deck is stacked against you? What do you do when there's people in every corner that are lying about you and mistreating you, attacking you on social media. Do what you can to bring justice, but sometimes you just have to endure the difficulty knowing that God has promised that he sees you, that he's not unaware of what you're walking through, that there's actually a big bowl in heaven where he captures your tears. Some of you in this very room are walking through the hardest time you've ever walked through in life. And although, although, Although you carry it well sometimes, just because you carry it well doesn't mean it's not heavy. 
And you need to hear this. God sees you. This is not the way that God intended the world to be. This is the effect of sin. Now, our God is so good that he's going to take the difficulty and the brokenness and the ignorance of the people around you that are misrepresenting you, that are lying about you, that are not giving you the job because of your faith, all those things. He's going to take all those things. He's going to use it for your good because he's going to use it as sandpaper to kind of rub off those rough edges that you didn't even know were there. Like Joseph has the, has the detour in the prison for almost two decades. Why? Because Joseph wasn't ready to be pro-counsel. No, God had to teach Joseph some things in the darkness so that when he got brought back into the light, God was able to use him in incredible ways without him being arrogant and thinking that he did it. Same thing with David. Decades before David was anointed king as a little shepherd boy, and he actually took the kingdom. Have you ever read through just his encounter with Saul and how Saul hated him? Why? Because David wasn't ready. God's going to take those difficult things and use them to make David ready to be king, just like God's not even all the time sending them. He's not ordaining them. He doesn't say that this is my, and this is my intention. Peter doesn't come down off the transfiguration and say, okay, this is God's words to slaves and masters. No, he doesn't say that. He says, in the context of which you're in, this is what you need to do. You need to be humble. You need to trust God and you need to do good. You see that word grace in there? It's in there twice in verse 19 and <clears throat> at the end of verse 20. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Blessing others with what they don't deserve. They do not deserve you to do good, but you're going to do it anyway. Remember, because the kingdom of God runs on grace. Grace towards us and grace towards others. The Moravians were one of the first Protestant groups living in the West. Their story is amazing. If you want, just read, read some, some biographies on the Moravians. They're amazing. They were one of the first groups that came West to reach Native Americans and uh, Vikings. These people were just full of the power of God. They started a prayer meeting, 24-hour prayer meeting. You know, we had one of those a couple months ago. It's 48 hours. They, they started one, and it lasted for 100 years. These people, <laughs> these people were not slack. There was an island in the West Indies that you couldn't get to unless you were a slave. So two of their leaders sold themselves into slavery to bring the gospel to that island. As they boarded the ship, this is in 1732, as they boarded the ship, they yelled out from the back of the ship, may the Lamb of God that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Humble yourself, trust God, and do good. Let's go to chapter 3. We're not going to get all of this today, some of this next week. Basically, Reynolds last week started really a four-part series in the middle of 1 Peter about what to, what to do in the space between the promise of God and the fulfillment of God. He says in chapter 3, likewise, which means in the same way, remember missional employment, missional patriotism or missional citizenship and now missional marriage not to be confused with missional dating this is he's not advocating missional dating that's where a girl who loves listen to my daughters um that's where a girl who loves god wants to change a boy who doesn't love god by dating them he is not condoning that 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on a gold jewelry, or clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit with which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I was going to ask Ashley to call me Lord, but I was too scared. Likewise, husbands, another likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise means in the same way. Remember, this is the third relationships that Peter's using. These are all just applications of that, of that one idea of perseverance through difficulty. The plight of women in, in this day, in these days, were not good. They were more or less property not even allowed to have their own friends. Aristotle says that a woman's not even allowed to have her own friends. She should make herself friends with the people her husband brings around. Their job was to bear male children, keep the household. And so what Peter says in this passage about husbands and wives, especially what he says to the husbands in a minute, was scandalous. We'll get to them shortly. You know what he tells the wives? to be humble, to trust God, to do good, to be respectful, to be pure. Look at the goal. The goal is not that, I mean, you could, you're free in Christ, you could resent your husband. You could cut him down with your word. You could give him the cold shoulder. You could make your house a living hell. You could do that. But instead he says, you should humble yourself. You should do good to him and you should trust Jesus. In our very own church, I've not asked them for permission, so I'm not going to share names or stories. In our very own church, we have husbands who have been won to Christ by the attitude and actions of their believing spouses. Through a spirit of humility and respect. Look what he says here at verse 4. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You're like, Luke, that's the meaning. Those are the same adjectives used of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Using these same Greek words, because I'm gentle and lowly. Some of you may have a modern-day uh, illustration that some of you have heard of Lee Strobel. He's the one who wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith and The Case for Literally Everything Under the Sun. The case, he's the case for guy. His wife came to Christ and radically changed her life, and she was sharing the gospel with her husband, and he did not want to come to Christ. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and so he set on a year-long journey to disprove Christianity. He was bright, had a Ph.D. He started doing all this research on the resurrection, 
somewhere through his journey, he came to faith. And when asked about it, what was the key piece of evidence that helped you move from a non-believer to a believer? He said, it was my wife. Christianity was not a game to her. We'll get into some of the other details later. You can Google hairstyles in like ancient Rome to see what he's talking about. That to make themselves noticed, to kind of put themselves on display, these women would have these crazy hairstyles with like birds in them and weird stuff. Hopefully that doesn't bring up any weird things in your search, but that kind of thing. And the gold jewelry and the, I mean, just, they just, I just want to be noticed. Would you look at me? And you know, he says, you know what, you know what God loves to see? He sees the heart. He doesn't see your socials, whatever you're saying to all the people. He sees all that, but he looks past all that. He's looking at your heart, bro. He's looking at your heart. Let's get to husbands real quickly. We're coming back to this passage next week talk about marriage but likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing look it's also likewise in the same ways that wives are submitting to husbands there is a time there is a mutual humility and a marriage to make it work likewise he starts with likewise again live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel he says bros you better treat your wife like she's a daughter of the king of kings And if you don't, I'm not listening to your prayers. I didn't say that. That's what the text said. That prayer you've been praying about for your people to do whatever and to get that promotion. And for I'm not even listening to that because I see how you're treating your bride. Your prayers are literally hindered by the way you treat your spouse. Pretty direct words there, Peter. I have a friend who immigrated here from Iran. She says Iran. I guess she's the one that can call it what she wants to. She's from there. Iran. She corrects me. Her dad was a very harsh, very driven man. Came from a Muslim culture. Very hard on the family at times when she was a young teenager. Her dad came to Christ. And he came back into the house broken. Sat them all down and he washed their feet and apologized for being such a harsh dictator in their home. Their whole family came to Christ. She said, if, a God, if God can change a man like my dad was, it's the real deal. Let's get back to chapter 221. Our example in all these things, Peter says, is Christ. In any relationship where you experience hardship, where you experience suffering, where you experience darkness, where you experience delay, where you experience dead end, where you experience injustice, in any of these relationships, Peter says, Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he was humble. He understood difficulty was an integral part of God's plan of salvation. His wounds were the very means in which God brought salvation to the world. Peter tells us that in some mysterious way that that's true of us too. When we walk through difficulty, we bleed the blood of Christ. When we walk through things that we don't understand, we we shed the tears of Christ. If Christ is in us, 
then when we walk through things that we don't understand and we're lied about and we're, we're abused and we lose things because of our stance and our belief in him, that God sees that. And in some way, some mysterious way, that's how the gospel actually goes forward. Isn't that amazing? A lot of Christians have bought into this prosperity gospel that if you follow Jesus and you do right, then everything will go smoothly. Anybody in here say that that's not true? That that's not the experience of your life? As a matter of fact, when you take a step of faith and another step of faith, life gets harder. Like, what is this, Lord? I'm trying to follow you and do what's right, and everything around me keeps messing up. Oh, here's the secret to the broken world. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not, not circumstances. I don't know what Savior they're following, but it's not Jesus. To follow in his steps mean that we should expect to be misunderstood, that we should expect to be persecuted, that there will certainly be unjust suffering. Jesus didn't roll into Jerusalem in an escalade and take up residence in the biggest mansion that they had sold on Airbnb. He came on a donkey, had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, if you walk with me, if you follow me, you're going to experience some of the same things. One of the problems I really believe in America is people were sold a false bill of goods when it comes to even some in VBS, that if you give your life to Jesus, everything's going to be skilled and rainbows, and that is not the truth. You don't, you don't follow Jesus because of what you are to get. You follow Jesus because you get him. Piper says that old quote, I, this is my interpretation of it. Some of us, if, if you could get to heaven and there would be no more tears and there'd be no more trials and you would be perfectly fine if Jesus wasn't there, you're not going to get to heaven. Because the people who get to heaven are the ones that make him Lord and Savior of their life, make him the affection of their hearts and their souls. And heaven would be heaven if it was just Jesus and nothing else. Jesus was humble. Jesus was, Jesus trusted God. He committed himself to the good father. He says in verse 23, to him who judges justly. He knew earthly justice may never come. He's here to literally give his life for the sins of others. He lived a perfect life. But he knew God would give full justice to him in his heavenly country. To me, friends, this is such a relief. There's no need to get better at the crooked boss. There's no need to resent the family member who's done you. There's no need. You can literally forgive them. That doesn't mean you have to invite them back into their life. We can talk about forgiveness later, but you can, you can forgive them. You can entrust them to the one who judges justly, to use Peter's words here. There's no need to scroll endlessly on your phone, raging against every hot-button topic of the moment. You in a gentle and lowly way can walk with God, love people, and do good. Last point about Jesus, I invite the musicians up. Jesus kept doing good. In verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die 
to sin and live unto righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we, you, he says, we were like straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseers of our soul. Jesus kept doing the right thing, knowing that in all situations he would respond first and foremost to God and God would take care of everything else. He says, Nero's not not my ultimate authority, God is. The earthly master is not my ultimate authority. Your employer is not your ultimate authority. God is. Your spouse is not your ultimate authority. God is. And God says, I know things are going to be dark and difficult for a while. This is going to be the nature of life on a broken world. But God says, I'm at work in the midst of it. And I've got a bunch of lost sons and daughters out there. They're living in ignorance. They've not been set free. They've never tasted hope and joy. Even in our own city, friends, there are people everywhere who know a false version of the gospel. And they know a false version because that's what they were taught. And they've never seen a true Christian really live out a gospel life that forgave, that had hope in Jesus, that had joy unspeakable and full of glory. Friends, we're invited to be that people to be resurrection people, to be people of light in the midst of darkness. Back to verse 15, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good, by his stripes, friend, we're healed. And now mercy and grace should be our song. We we would all be hopeless without his goodness, wouldn't we? We would all be desperate without his love. May we who have received mercy... Demonstrate mercy to everyone we come in contact with. Hallelujah for the cross, amen. We're going to take communion. And Christian, can you just put that same slide back up there, the the Jesus, he was slide? I want you to think about this when we take communion today. The humility and scandal it took for Jesus to go to the cross and die for sins that he didn't commit that his commitment to living out God it was the joy that was set before him Hebrews says and that he did good he was committed to doing good he's literally hanging on the cross and he's forgiving the very people who are driving the nails into his hands isn't that incredible if you would bow your heads with me just for a moment apologize for going a little long today I want you to hear from God this morning. So in the stillness of this moment, would you ask Holy Spirit, what are you leading me to do? Maybe some of you have been dealt just the hardest hand and you've got trauma and scars. Maybe it was your fault, maybe it wasn't your fault. But the pain is still the same. Maybe you just want to take that pain to Jesus this morning or invite Jesus in for the pain. You put a Band-Aid on it, you covered it up, but it's, I mean, it's infected in there. Maybe you just invite Jesus into those wounds and say, Jesus, you know what's happened. You know the, the dark parts of my story. You know the, the voice of the enemy that keeps coming back to tell me that I'm not good enough and loved enough and that you're not close enough. And I believe those things. I believe that lie. And I'm just asking you to come in and just heal that wound. Please invite him into that. 
Some of you are walking through a difficult season that you never anticipated, that you didn't ask for. You're, you're playing in a game that you didn't choose. You're tired, you're weary. Maybe you just need to ask him for strength today. Jesus, would you help me do it another day? When this people I work with start making fun of you and using your name in vain misunderstanding you would you would you help me stand up for the truth would you let my life be so winsome and so compelling that even my employer and my employees and my neighbors and my family members that don't understand it that they would be one to you without a word from me because of my deeds oh and yeah let, let me use words too let me talk about how beautiful you are, how you've reconciled me, that you give hope and joy and peace. Some of you in this room, you don't, you don't even know Jesus. You've played a religious game for a long time. You've never stepped across the line of faith and entrusted him as Lord and Savior. Man, I would just, it would be pastoral malpractice not for me to invite you to do that today. That today would be the day of salvation. But you don't have to understand it all to believe it's true. God, do what only you can do in your people this morning. As the enemy's here and camped around us and he's trying to distract and, and deceive and destroy and divide, he's doing it even now as we speak. Lord, I pray against his work in the name of Jesus and by Jesus, your blood. Jesus, do in our hearts what needs to be done forgiveness that needs to be extended, relationships that need to be reconciled, people that need to come and join your family, husbands and wives that have had harsh tones with each other for the last little bit, that they would reconcile those things in the name of Jesus. Husbands whose prayers have been hindered because of the way they thought about or talked about their spouse, that that would be forgiven and restored so that the communication between them and you would be restored so that the kids that live in their house would know that Christianity is not just a thing we do on Sundays. It is my mom and my dad's deep, passionate love for Jesus. It is so real and so captivating. Jesus, do what only you could do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Communion, be ready when you're ready. Take as much time as you need. We've got a prayer team in the back. They would love to pray with you about anything.